As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. There's nobody ahead of me in football terms. Not Pep, not, not Klopp, not Arteta. So it's all there with me. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me this week, Michael Cox is here and Liam Tharm is here. But we also have a debut. Welcome to Duncan Alexander, a Duncan debut. Hello. AKA Oily Sailor Mm. uh, on Twitter. You've been sailing the turbulent waters of, of football statistics and data for some time now. Yes. Not to age you. Well, quite, quite aging that, but yeah. Yeah, quite a long time. Would you say that a bit like Sam Allardyce, <laughs> you were one of the forefathers of what football analytics has become? Yeah, well, I guess I got into the realm of numbers and football around the same time Allardyce rose to prominence in the Premier League. So there is a, there's quite a neat sort of timeline-based uh, thing there. So, yeah. Well, it's good to have you on. This is obviously the Football Tactics podcast. We love our data and our stats as well. Tactics-wise, um, give us an idea of, of, of what you like. I, I'm imagining as a Wiccan Wanderers fan, you are <laughs> something of a direct play savant after the last 10 years. I mean, I've got used to it, yeah. I mean, I think I don't really like anyone that sort of says that there's a, a right way to play football. I mean, there isn't. It's, you know, you adapt to the, the players you have, the circumstances you have. Um, and I think if you look at someone like Allardyce, to go back to him... He very much is someone that's done that. You know, he he has played different football at, at different times. The, that Bolton team, you know, JJ Kocha, Yuri Jurkov, they played some good stuff once they got it forward. So um, less so perhaps at West Brom recently. So um, yeah, we don't know which version we're going to get. Leeds probably more more that one. Michael, what are your thoughts on Sam Allardyce's appointment at Leeds? Four games to keep them above the relegation zone. Should be remembered that right now they are just above the dotted line on goal difference with Man City to play next and, and Newcastle United after that. Yeah, I'm quite intrigued. I mean, I, to be honest, I thought Allardyce was kind of done at the top level now. I didn't think anyone would go back to him. And I didn't really think it would be Leeds considering the managers they've appointed. I thought they wanted to kind of have a certain approach and, and appoint managers who were consistent with that. I mean, he doesn't have that much time to turn it around. And I don't think it's a team really that is suited to playing direct football, to be honest. I think they're, they're you know, it's a team built for Bielsa or Jesse Marsh. So... I don't know, maybe it's worth a go, but um, I uh, I have my doubts, to be honest. Liam, so- sometimes there's a sense of 
Leeds have had such an extreme style of play, particularly out of possession. They've been very wedded, more or less, to a to, to certain style for the last couple of years. And it might be very difficult to literally change that if that's the way that Allardyce will approach things in the space of uh, a couple of days. Do, do you buy into that? Or do you think sometimes uh, the media and fans kind of overplay how difficult it is to change style at the, at the drop of a hat? Maybe to a little bit. I think there's a good example of, of Dice doing it quite well early on at Everton and his first game against Arsenal. He tweaked things, but then I think you need a good sort of base to go from. My big critique really of Leeds of later been that their style felt very predictable. They always seem to sort of shape up in the same way. And ironically, that seemed to go out the window completely against Bournemouth. I watched them try a back three, which to be honest, went hideously because it then looked like the thing of here's a system you haven't tried sort of all season that you're now throwing in in a relegation battle. I think their issue has been not having Patrick Bamford fully fit. You know, their style was very dependent on him being fit to be the number nine to sort of service him. Um, again, there's just been so many sackings this season, which is obviously something that we'll come on to, that so many things chopping and changing that it's hard to work out what really the variables that are actually affecting the results. That mm. To see Hodgson and Allardyce and more broadly in the EFL to have Warnock back into sort of management is, I think it's just a bit crazy, to be honest. He's diving into a remarkable relegation battle, Duncan. I think unique in how tight it's been in the bottom half. I know you've done some work on that over the last few months. There was a game between Leicester and Everton a couple of nights ago, which was two all final score, an XG scoreline of 3.06 against 3.35. I mean, these games are meant to be like tense and nervy and tight. And that was the opposite. Uh, it was an extraordinary match. I mean, it's the only time in recorded Premier League history that both teams have got over three XG in a, in a match. So it just showed how open it was. I mean, it could have been 4-4, four, 5-5. Four, five, five. Um, yeah, I mean, I think both managers almost accept that their teams can't defend. And it probably was the best approach. And it turned out to be, you know, one of the all-time classic Monday. It felt like the most Monday night football sort of game you could ever envisage, really. Casper Schmeichel being the guest, I think, helped as well because he he looked faintly horrified at points of what was actually transpiring. But I think it does speak to the wider relegation battle. There have been so many changes in, in managers. Teams don't really know what style of play they're playing half the time. It's just get out there, see how it goes, and, and react to what happens on the pitch. And everything's become so reactive, I think. Well, that game clashed with the final of the World Snooker Championship which is perennially a little bit of an issue mm. because in 2016, that was the day of uh, Chelsea 2, Tottenham 2 at uh, Battle of the Bridge, which was a chaotic game. And in 2014, it was Palace against Liverpool, 3 all. So maybe there's something to do with May Bank holidays that creates this frantic atmosphere. I mean, people have probably been drinking all day. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, the fans, not the players, that is, I should say. <laughs> Although it is also fair to say that down there at the moment, it also it is also quite frantic and quite hectic. I mean, Liam, Nottingham Forest are notable for the fact that they haven't changed their manager this season. They are very much in that relegation mix. But Leeds and Leicester and Everton, do you have any thoughts on why they are still so bad despite efforts to change their fortunes? Leicester are a hard one to work out because I feel like anyone that I've spoken to about them this season... It's also in the agreement that when they're playing good on their good days, they are actually a really decent side. They just seem to be having a lot of bad days. Obviously, they maybe look like they need more of a, a squad refresh to to bring in some um, new talent. But I remember watching them at West Ham just before the World Cup, and they were really, really good, really decent. Harvey Barnes had a really good day. 
there's enough ingredients there that just don't seem to always be sort of clicking correctly. I think Leeds and Everton have a lot of parallels you can draw in terms of being quite predictable, um, both having a, a number nine that's been injured for sort of large parts of the season, but also not really having a plan B. For like Dyche's system works really well when you can stay in games for a long period of time. I think all their wins under him have been 1 0, um, which is, I think, quite telling in and of itself. But for Leeds recently, I think Mali has been a problem as well. Mm. I like him in his profile, but he's had a few handling errors um, for both the goals against Fulham. At times, if your system's failing, you need match winners at both ends of the pitch, which I think they just haven't had recently. And that just sort of really kicks you when you're down, to be honest. I don't get Mali at all. I don't think he's ever been very good. I think he's constantly conceded really silly goals. I think there's two goalkeepers at the bottom end of the Premier League this year who are just massively out of their depth, the other one being Bazuna at Southampton, just constantly costing them. If they had even an average Premier League goalkeeper, I think they'd be well clear of relegation. You look at some of the other goalkeepers down there. Kilo Navas has, has been pretty good. I think Leno's had a brilliant season at Fulham. I think just the quality of goalkeepers made a massive difference to the, the fate of these teams. You can even say that about Leicester as well, because obviously they've now put Everson in instead of Ward, and he was great. On Monday night, you could argue, you know, I think Everton obviously got Pickford. I think you could put Pickford in half the teams down there and those teams would be a good five, six points better off and that, that makes a massive difference. Everton's problem is obviously the reverse, is that they don't have anyone up front until Calvert-Lewin uh, gets fit. You mentioned Bazzano at Southampton. He's got a goals prevented uh, number, which obviously the XG, you know, a negative number means you've kind of let in more goals than you'd expect based on expected goals, of minus 17 this season, which is, I've never seen that before. That is almost... That's a yeah, that's a tough scene. Um, in terms of Dyche and Everton, goals is the biggest issue. Are we surprised that they don't look more solid at the back? I mean, he's got his Tarkovsky, he's got his Michael Keane, but it, it doesn't look anything like what we thought it might look, best case scenario, under Dyche. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm not sure I have any explanation, but yeah, I thought he would shore up the defence better than this and maybe that doesn't bode well for Allardyce because that's what he's got to do at Leeds in four games as well. Well, do we think that the the sort of low block defensive first mindset of making sure that you're clearing your lines and various other phrases to explain that, that tactical style, is there an argument that that is becoming less effective in the modern Premier League? I think it's one less popular. I think people care more about what you do in possession, using possession as a defensive tool people generally want at least one of the two of style and results. You often have the fullback of, oh, well, we might have lost or dropped points or um, not be in a fantastic position, but, you know, we're trying to play some sort of nice stuff, be, be more advanced, be more progressive. That was a big thing for Palace, I think, when they brought in Vieira was trying to evolve and often that is then tied to, I think, bringing down the age of your team, sort of having a nice squad churn and having more of a pathway through from the academy to effectively, I think, be more long-term sustainable. I think people look at... Be more Brighton. I, I didn't want to say that. Um, <laughs> put words into my mouth. But yeah, I, I think people see being defensive and maybe just because it's being reactive, it's not really having a long-term aim because you're not really aspiring to be anything. It's not having a style or identity because it's always dependent on stopping what the other team are doing rather than saying, I can look at this team and it plays like how I want a, a Pep Guardiola Man City or a Mikel Arteta Arsenal to play. You know, people care how things look. It might then come back full circle and be more effective now, like with Brentford, where teams aren't set up to always break those sorts of defences down. I think you're right in terms of the fashion thing. I mean, I remember when pre-internet, Martin O'Neill was manager at Wickham and people used to write letters in to complain about the style of play when Wickham were like miles clear at the top of the, uh, the Vauxhall Conference. And um, he used to basically use his notes in the programme to just slag them off and go, what are you talking about? So 
I think it did exist always, but it was a lot harder to get that point of view out there. And for all football clubs and managers, particularly, were always like, oh, we we don't care about fashions in football. But I think they actually do because that that thing of refreshing your style, you know, obviously, we've seen what Vincent Company's done with Burnley. It's become almost this like holy grail that when an era ends, you kind of you switch it around and you know give the fans something different. I had reports of a manager uh, after the end of this season in the Isthmian Premier League losing his job because his style of football wasn't modern enough he was getting results they finished I think just outside the playoff places but the chairman was like yeah it's not gonna get people into the ground people don't want to see this kind of football anymore and that's that's the seventh division of English football I guess even names that we've mentioned such as Sean Dyche such as Sam Allardyce even in a slightly previous era were not sort of uh being marketed favorably because of a style of play, you know, objectively getting results and achieving what they were meant to achieve. At it, certainly in Allardyce's case, in most of his jobs, and in Dyche's case with Burnley, absolutely inarguably. And yet the conversation about, yeah, well, but they'll they'll never be able to do it elsewhere has consistently held them back getting the sorts of jobs that they would have liked yeah, to have got. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a big perception bias in this as well, right? I think I think it's the same with players because you've got Allardyce, Dice, who are men of a certain age who are English and therefore get stereotyped a certain way. And, and Dice has spoken about that. He, there's a great coach's voice video where he sort of, sort of breaks down his tactics um, at the 4-4-2 and sort of says that he's very comfortable being put in this box. But if you take Thomas Frank at, at Brentford, who is this younger Danish guy with, with long hair, looks a bit more what we might call quote-unquote hipster, mm-hmm. right? So a, a bit different to that old-fashioned English manager. And he plays low block football, scores lots of goals on set pieces, play really direct with a front two and Ivan Tony and, and Brian Weimer who work really, really effectively. They're probably the most effective form of playing a back five, being defensive, not having a lot of possession. I don't think they've won a Premier League game with more than 50% of the ball. And yet everyone really enjoys watching them. I'd like to, uh, in, in response to your comments about perception, I'd like to bring up your men of a certain age thing. Sam Allardyce, 68 years old, fair enough. Sean Dyche, 51 years old. Younger than Pep Guardiola. Wow. But you're saying that if Sean Dyche had Thomas Frank's hair, then he'd be doing better. <laughs> That's all it is. But then I think if you put people or quiz people on who is older at Pep Guardiola and Sean Dyche, I don't think I'd have put Guardiola as the younger one. So uh, fascinating. Could someone please Photoshop Thomas Frank's hair onto Sean Dyche's <laughs> face and send it to me on Twitter? Thank you. The Allardyce appointment's kind of good timing for this discussion and for what we're going to lead into. Michael, a clip from his podcast, No Tippy Tappy Football, uh, has been doing the rounds in the last 24 hours. Uh, and he said on there... I have certain ways of uh, certain ways of working and the one way of working that everybody sees as a negative, which is actually the best positive of all, stop goals going in. Because <laughs> everybody, down, everybody down there concedes more goals than anybody else. Yeah. And the players are, are suffering from a huge lack of confidence. And so you go, you go in and set the structure. Mm. The structure is not to get beat because, because confidence is built by yeah. results. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how much good, how good you are as a coach. or Unless you put those results right quickly as possible, mm. which starts, it starts with a nil-nil. It starts, you know, it starts with a draw. When you're getting up on a Sunday morning to come in and do your recovery, you're not coming in by with lost. And it changes. It changes. It changes the training. Ground. These quotes are pointing towards this discussion about a defence-first tactical style or a reactive tactical style being unfashionable. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a few interesting things to pick out from that. One, I think, is his focus on kind of confidence and the feeling around a club. Because, I mean, obviously in football terms, in points terms, there's much more of a difference between a win and a draw than a draw and a defeat. But I think when you talk to people around clubs, like losses are just poison. Like they really, really badly affect the mentality around the club. So I do completely understand what he's saying. The question, of course, is whether with four games to go, you can have that approach because they probably need two wins, I would guess, to be safe. And so you can't really have this gradual building confidence. But I do I do understand his point. And it is what he tried to do at West Brom. And I, th- from memory, I think at first it went quite well, but then they kind of collapsed, right? Well, he started off away from home quite well. Um, you got that draw at Liverpool. It was the start of Liverpool going really bad in that home run. Yeah, Everyone was like, oh, Adelaide has still got the magic. But his first four home games were 3-0 defeat to Villa, 5-0 defeat to Leeds, 4-0 defeat to Arsenal, and a 5-0 defeat to Manchester wow. City. So That's worse than the remember, shoring yeah. up shop bit, he didn't really uh, sort out. The control point is interesting because if you flip that to a lot of the in-possession stuff, that's kind of what Guardiola speaks about in a lot of ways, about controlling, being organised, having a structure um, and a shape. And I think it's just more broadly that managers, for the most part, seem to really hate transition and a lack of control. Mm-hmm. That They want either their team to be dictating the game with or without the ball. But as soon as they're sort of turnover and it's messy, it's, you know, it's then out of their control. Things become a lot more random. You're then reliant on players sort of making decisions for themselves, which is fine. But I guess if you're coming in with four games to go, you've not been responsible for developing these players over a period of time. You just need to say, okay, how can I effectively raise the the floor of this team, minimise our errors rather than making us really, really good eight or nine out of 10? Can I just avoid us being disastrously bad? But I think it's there's a lot of parallels really to what Guardiola says and that perception on it of how they want the game to be played. Just in this case, it's a lot more defensively than it is in possession. I mean, obviously Allardyce left Bolton in the late 2000s to get what for him was a pretty plum job at Newcastle. And I think that does... That does lend itself to the idea that back then his style of play, although was seen as slightly industrial, but wasn't seen as out of step, I think, with top level football. I mean, between 2004 and 2009, five title winners in a row considered fewer than 30 goals in that season. Uh, Obviously, Chelsea being the best of 15 in 04 or 05, which will never get beaten. But since then, uh, obviously, then Chelsea scored 103 and let in 32 in 09-10, which kind of broke the mould, I think. It's kind of never been the same since, really. Average number of goals conceded by a Premier League winner since then is sort of just over 32. Um, and obviously we're on course for for similar this season, I think. So we really did have a sort of brief but intense defensive period in the mid-2000s, which, Michael, you'll, you'll remember this as well. I don't, I don't think it was universally loved, but it was recognised as being effective. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think there has been a real shift away from that style of football. And I think... You know, you can just look at it with the styles of players. I mean, the styles of defenders. Like defenders are encouraged to be first and foremost good on the ball and they, then they can kind of learn the defensive side of the game. And some of them do and some of them are never that great at the defensive side of the game. So, yeah, I think there has been a big shift away from just being solid. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It feels like there's a lot more goals at the moment, particularly in crunch games that, as I alluded to with Everton Leicester, you expect them to be cagey and nervy and therefore low margin and low low scoring. But nowadays you see a fixture like Liverpool Spurs on the weekend and before the game even kicks off, you think to yourself, one or both of these teams could completely flame out. One or both of these teams could also rack up the goals here. It does feel like there's been a shift on that front. Yeah, no, I do agree with that. Because I think teams are playing a different style. And I think maybe the interesting example of this over the last few seasons is the team in the relegation battle who we're probably not going to speak about, which is Southampton, whose time in the Premier League in recent years is almost going to be defined by those like nine nils. And it's like, that's the way that they were built. They were built to press high and they're built to defend a certain way. And if that goes a little bit wrong, it goes completely wrong. And they don't have the mentality or the players or the preparation to just protect their box and defend their penalty box so yeah I think there has been a a big shift away from that and maybe I mean you look at Allardyce I think of like West Ham as being the last time he was like completely almost in control of a club and they got his style of football and I remember looking at some of the passing stats of his centre-backs I think maybe Tompkins or Collins and they were passing it they were completely like five passes a game which you just you don't find with anyone that even Brentford build up play a little bit get the ball in certain situations and play it forward so yeah there's been a huge a huge shift away from that I just got to jump in quickly because I, I was meant to bring this up I've, I've had it noted down for the last week or so um, Gareth Ainsworth formerly Wickham manager now QPR manager um, is is trying to uh, play a similar style of football uh, in the championship at first it wasn't working then they've rattled off two wins in a row to, to secure their safety but in a game last week one of their central midfield players played 65 minutes and did not complete a pass and they won the game. Wow. And I don't know if we could maybe dip into some databases here, but I can't imagine that's happened very often. A centre midfielder not completing a pass and his team winning the game. I think you'd be surprised, actually. I think there's plenty of League One games, maybe some of them involving Gareth Ainsworth teams that (laughs) that have seen that. Um, I mean, in Premier League terms, to go back to the sort of 2000s, we... I think the all-time record low of completed passes in a game was an A.D. Boothroyd Watford team away at Portsmouth. I think it was like 67 or something, which in a which in a 90-minute game is pretty bad. But then, to your point, Ali, about the the high-scoring games between big teams now, Sky had a weird couple of years in the 2000s where they had Grand Slam Sundays, where they'd mysteriously the fixture computer would put <laughs> Chelsea, Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, and United playing each other on the same day. Two of them, obviously. Um, and there was at least one where both games ended nil-nil and they'd built it up with a lot of montages, as was the style, and it just, they were not very good games. Whereas now, it kind of feels like the United beating Arsenal 8-2 
was the sort of the change. That was the period. That was the moment that we suddenly realised that big, big games in the Premier League could have loads of goals. And obviously, City winning six one at Old Trafford followed not soon after. And and from then on, I guess the the big six era sort of unfolded. And I do think the fact that when it was four big teams for going for four spots in the Champions League, it kind of like was like almost limit your limit your damage essentially. But now there's a lot of big teams in the Premier League with a lot of weapons and they kind of, I don't know, it feels like they can cut loose a, a bit more easily. Some of the more extreme scorelines are, are easy to conjure, like Liverpool beating Man United 4-0 and 5-0 last season, 7-0 this season, that 4-3 win against Spurs uh, on the weekend. If you go through basically any of the top teams, probably barring Newcastle, who keep things a little bit tighter, and, and Chelsea, who are 12th anyway, um, almost all of the the clubs at the top of the table, Michael, have had a fixture this season against one of the other big ones that's had six, seven, eight goals in it. And I'd just be interested to know if statistically this is abnormal or, or if I'm just, you know, barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, I mean, even Newcastle have got their 6-1 against Spurs recently. So, I mean, yeah, we're looking at almost 9% of Premier League games this season with, with six or more goals, which is a new record. But I think the lowest would have been, I was surprised, mid-2000s when it dropped as low as 3.9 in 2005-06, which I can close my eyes and almost envisage the sort of games that brought around that number. So, so yeah, we, the, the numbers back up the eye test, basically. Well, in terms of when it happens between two big clubs, I know Pep Guardiola in the past has suggested that because big clubs are so dominant these days, when they do go two or three goals behind, they just psychologically don't know how to deal with it and collapse a little bit, which I think is quite interesting because it has, I mean, it's happened to his sides in the past. I mean, Bayern Munich, most obviously, uh, losing 4-0 to Real Madrid at a time when they're European champions, I think is a good example of that. So yeah, it does seem to happen quite a lot in big games. There's a great example with Napoli this season as well, uh, at home against Milan, where Milan just started the game well, went one nil up, um, and Napoli never got into the game and ended up losing four nil, which you just don't expect from a team that had won pretty much everything this season. Um, so it's clearly not just a specifically European thing. I feel like we've seen it with Barca in Europe as well, a team that are on track, I think, to set like defensive records in terms of goals, fewest goals conceded, and clean sheets in the Liga. Um, and it, it makes sense, right? I guess you get so used to one controlling the game with the ball and knowing how the flow of the game is going to go, and two just not dealing with the pressure or having the ball you know, repeatedly go into your net. And I think that's why teams often, when they concede those goals as well, concede them in clusters that Spurs with three nil down inside 50 minutes, I think it was, that it almost feels like you can just see these attacks that are going to lead to goals and lead, mm. lead to chances because mentally it must just ruin you as a player. Here they come again, it's Isak, it's So we're on course for the highest goals per game of the Premier League era. At 2.84 is just a smidgen higher than last year, 2.82. Uh, we've, I think we did a whole podcast on the, the goals per game rate in the Premier League and reasons for it. It was as low as 2.45 uh, in the three seasons after Mourinho and Benitez uh, joined the Premier League. Uh, Michael, let, let's just whiz through some of the contributing factors here, starting with tactical trends in terms of the ambition of teams particularly without the ball in, in trying to put the squeeze on and press high up the pitch and mixed with the desire to build out from the back uh, probably more than, than ever before yeah I mean when you look at the the goals per game rate I mean it's roughly up 0.1 a game from five-ish years ago so that's one goal every 10 games so one extra goal when you're watching 
you know, a complete round of Premier League matches. And I wonder how much of that is is to do with these goals we see from teams just playing out from the back and losing it. I mean, we know for individual teams, there are statistics that show you do progress the ball further up the pitch in general. So presumably there's other types of goals, you know, that aren't happening. But it is mad, really, how much we accept those goals now. I mean, the last one I saw wasn't in the Premier League. It was in the Women's Champions League, Wolfsburg-Arsenal. And the Arsenal centre-back just literally passed it to the Wolfsburg striker for an open goal. I mean, that would have been the maddest thing you've ever seen like 10 or 15 years ago. Own goals like, and gaffes. Yeah. <laughs> now we're just like, well, yeah, that happens. That's part of football. I mean, yeah, the argument probably doesn't stack up, but goals like that must contribute one goal every Premier League match day, I reckon. It's the same in terms of pressing because there's a good Sky Sports article at the end of last season that looked at sort of high turnovers and other metrics across the season and found that across the board, this wasn't just like a, a league average where you've got the top teams doing it more that bumps everything up, but like... I think it was at least 15 of the teams had more high turnovers than the prior season. So you've got this sort of like, you look at the median team, which is often like Palace are a great sort of middle of the road Premier League side. And even they were trying to really press high. That's going to lead to goals or chances at one end of the pitch or the other, because either you win the ball high, you've got, you know, a few defenders in the way, disjointed opposition, and you're closer to goal to try and score. Or you press high, you're vacating space towards your own goal. You get played through. Territory now is a big thing. Like we speak about field tilt and sort of, caring less for possession inherently now and more where is that possession, where is that ball? I think you just see that with the managers that are no longer in the league that people get fed up within sort of three, four games ago. This just isn't good enough. Let's get rid of them. We're seeing a record number of sackings down the Premier League and teams, multiple teams sacking multiple managers is, I think, a big contributing factor to it as well because you just haven't got the time to develop players or develop a style. Things are going to be less cohesive naturally. Yeah, I think cohesion is is an interesting word to bring up there. Yeah, I mean, the last few years, we've also had things like, and these things are not all the same, things like a significant rule change in terms of the amount of substitutions that you can make from three to five. We've had this season a World Cup break in the middle of the season, which everyone spent months in the build-up talking about how it might affect the Premier League. I'm not sure if we've actually started to see any conclusions or, or whether there's anything particularly major that it has had an impact on. So it'd be interesting to hear if you think there has been or not. Uh, and of course... COVID broadly had a big impact on football at, at least for two years or so. You know, all of those different factors, Michael, are, p- are part of this conversation. Is there any any of those that you think is is a, a strong contributor to this? World Cup, I can't see has had much impact, to be honest. I don't really have a view on that. I think five subs probably has an impact, but I'm not sure which way that impact has gone. I mean... I would guess it probably makes things more attacking because I think teams can throw more attackers and I think that's in a way easier to do than throw more defenders, which I don't think guarantees you defensive solidity, if that makes sense. Mm. I think it's easier to open up the game than close it down. Then there's been some anecdotal stuff around, you know, swathes of subs being made after 70 minutes of games and actually potentially that impacting the rhythm and the flow, if anything. So that's yeah. that has been discussed as well, hasn't it? Which almost sort of runs runs count, counter to that. It's Well, it's interesting that the managers that we maybe thought would utilise five subs a lot perhaps haven't. You know, there's been numerous games, Man City games, where they haven't made a substitution. I think in terms of COVID, the one... I think Project Restart was interesting because obviously they brought in the drinks breaks because it was the summer. And I think clubs suddenly cottoned on to the fact that having a tactical reshape perhaps in the midway through the half is useful. And we've seen that happen quite a lot with um, mysterious goalkeeper injuries this season. I think that that makes a bit of difference. Um, and I think we can't underestimate how much the, the goal kick rule changed things as well because, you know, as, as someone who watches quite a lot of League One football, 
okay, Wickham don't do it very often, but there are a lot of teams that do. And I think the the very idea that you you draw the opposition onto you, even at that level, and we all know that some of those players are not that adept at doing it. And I think the the number of mistakes that the sort Michael was just talking about happen even more at that level. But in the same way, people kind of accept it now because it's like the idea that, yeah, you do still get some people in the crowd going, just get it forward. But most people kind of understand that you do create better chances generally from playing that way. There's got to be something said, I think, for the sheer volume of transfers as well, the the speed at which players and lots of players will be moving in and out of clubs. Things are less stable and they're constantly changing more. So I think players end up developing or having shorter like playing relationships with teammates. So we're seeing it a bit now with, with De Bruyne and Haaland, but this just doesn't look like a thing across the board. And I imagine that's even more impactful and we shouldn't see it as much in defence where you know you need oftentimes benefit from having a largely stable back line. Um, that's been a big chance of Newcastle actually this season that Dan Byrne, Fabian Scher, um, Sven Botman and Kieran Trippier in most of their games together and I guess you know Nick put behind them and um, I think once you've got more players coming in coming out that will again disrupt the flow I think this then has the knock-on effect for both teams in the same way with subs that it makes it more open for everyone because you probably build up worse but you're probably also going to be more open defensively. So if the average number of goals is at an all-time high Trying to think of other scenarios within football matches that this might impact. Uh, for example, Duncan coming back from two goals behind, for example, coming back from 2-0 down. That would be, uh, to my eyes anyway, a, a, an interesting thing to measure in terms of does a, a larger volume of goals mean that uh, those sorts of leads are less likely to be kept? Uh, is that the case? Well, I'm sad to report that yes, it is. I mean, obviously, Michael and I have had a, a long-standing debate about the is two 0 a dangerous lead. I mean, obviously, one 0 is the most dangerous lead. Can I just can you explain for the listeners and for me, who's not entirely across this, because there is quite there's quite charged energy between you as soon as I brought up the scoreline two 0 Where does this come from, and who wants to describe what's going on here? Well, ironically, because, I mean, Duncan's now got stats on this. My view on this is that it's never really been a statistical argument. It's more been a kind of don't get complacent. You know, everyone's seen a game of football where you tune know up, you think you're cruising, you can see one freak goal, and then suddenly the energy changes and the other team are back in it. it, it the phrase was originally, tune is a dangerous lead. It wasn't the most dangerous lead. This is the Jose Mourinho special one in football analytics of A slash exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is fair. But I would, I would also argue that that is right what Michael said. But at the same time, people only tend to remember confirmation bias when it actually goes wrong, and the vast amount of times it doesn't. You know, historically, you know, it's it's around sort of ten percent, twelve percent of games that um, when a team has a two goal lead that they either draw or lose the match in the Premier League. Okay, this season there has been a shift, a definite shift. We've already seen the most um, wins from two goal deficit, uh, six as it stands. Um, and we're looking at a percentage of, of two nil leagues not resulting in a win at around 18%, which is a record. So <laughs> That's a big we jump. Are, yeah, we are officially living in a dangerous time for two goal leagues, which I never thought I'd say. But, but, but something doesn't have to go wrong that high a percentage of, of the time for it to be dangerous right i would suggest it's like you know when you're a kid you're told to not to like run with scissors or something yeah mm. do you know what i mean like usually you'd be all right yeah but you would still say hey that's dangerous mate amount of times i swallowed chewing gum right oh. and i still haven't died my yeah. lungs haven't turned into chewing gum 
Yeah, which is what I was not told at the time. You know. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Well, being outside time. when there's a lightning, you know, when there's a thunderstorm. Yeah. You know, you'd probably be all right, but it's still it's still dangerous. That, you that don't would be want the negative outcome. Yeah, because that is the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, fear meant, the fear of it. Are you meant to get under a tree in that no. instant? No. No. Don't get under a tree. <laughs> Glad I checked. A, t- a Tottenham Hotspur player in the 1960s actually died on a golf course from that very method. So, yeah. Well, we're all learning a lot from from Duncan's debut on the pod, that's for sure. A couple of final questions here. Uh, One of them is, Michael, uh, more goals being scored per game, more jeopardy when teams go two goals ahead, more big swings. Is this a a positive thing? Is this a good thing for us football-loving neutrals who want to be entertained? Does this make the product better to watch? I guess most people would probably say yes. I think it can be dangerous when we judge things just in terms of goals per game in an era where there's such inequality between teams because sometimes that's just teams winning 5-0 or 6-0 rather than 3-0, which isn't a particularly good thing in itself. I must say, I think the impact, or I think the relevance of goals per game in terms of entertaining football is probably a bit overstated. I think with the exception of that, what I'm going to call the Mourinho and Benitez period, those three years... 2004, 2007, when it was quite obvious football was too defensive. Aside from that, in my time viewing football, I've never thought football has been too negative. Do you know what I mean? I, the 2.6, 2.7 goals per game, that era was was perfectly good football for me. I don't think it needed to be particularly more adventurous. But it's quite interesting if you go, I mean, I've done some research more historically, you look back at the 80s and 70s, you get like World Soccer magazine and just every month there's articles about like football's in crisis because it's so defensive. Yeah. But I think that is quite alien to people of, of our generation. You'd get really. like Serie A teams scoring like 28 goals in a season or the Capo Canieri finishing on like 12 and everyone mm. going, he knows where the goal is. Um, <laughs> but it does fluctuate so much and I do feel like you'd, obviously Erling Haaland's now just reached 51. He's the first player um, only second player ever after Dixie Dean as a top flight player to get above 50 mm. but the three players Dean Pongo Waring and another guy um, all did it in the late 20s early 30s which is obviously post the change in the offside rule and he, you do wonder whether when people look back at this era whether they will be picking out the sort of things you mentioned earlier as as big factors in, in this sudden sort of upsurge in players being able to score at that rate so is it like a 100 year cycle yeah like the 50 year storm in point break it's uh, yeah <laughs> well but if you look at results from it is amazing how how the trends can swing from one point to the next right because i was looking at when blackburn played burnley the other day it's one of the oldest fixtures in english football the the land classico as they call it <laughs> um and that the first eight fixtures between the two teams you know were like eight one seven nil six nil um then we've talked about a time michael there where People were panicking that football had become too defensive. And there's also, what is it, Boxing Day 1963? Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of that. But yeah. I mean, but weirdly, you go on uh, a few years, the lowest um, average goals per game season of all time in English football in the top flight is 1970 71. And the 70s are generally remembered as a sort of, you know, the era of the Mavericks and, you know, not really sort of systemized football, but just someone with long hair doing something mad at some point. But it has fluctuated a lot. I mean, I guess the ultimate being that, you know, the first ever international match ended nil-nil, which is quite nice. It's interesting you say that about the 70s and the Mavericks. I I actually didn't know that. But I think that's kind of what the situation was in Syria in the 1990s. 
you know, you had teams who were actually really defensive, but they had they based their side around one good player, someone like Zidane, for example. And if they didn't perform, they didn't really offer anything. I think that's always been the weird thing about Italian football. It's broadly been defensive, but they do have this real emphasis on, you know, a genius who can do what he wants. And that probably produces moments, but I don't think it produces consistently good football. What's the best high score? <laughs> I phrased that weirdly. What's the best scoreline? for entertainment purposes, in your opinion, Duncan? I'd probably go 4-3. I think that's within the realms of realism. Feels right, doesn't it? Yeah, I think 4-3. I mean, the classic is Liverpool-Newcastle, obviously. 4 all to me, always feels a little bit too much. 3-3 three, is good, but 4-4, yeah. four, four, you're right, feels just... And 5-5, five, five, I mean, I've sat through 5-5 five, five last season, Wickham-Cheltenham, and it was just stupid. It just <laughs> didn't even feel like football. I will just go to bat for for all just for a second because the image of both sets of players falling to the turf neither happy or particularly sad is quite special and then you get the lovely all the chuckles between managers mm. and a lot of chuckling in the post-match interview because no one can really make sense of it i think the draw almost helps with that side of things which is something that i quite like personally I mean, I like the, the Southampton Arsenal 3 all the other week because both sides were really gushed at the end. I do think the concept of a draw in football is good. It is quite underrated. Not, I mean, some sports, you don't ever get draws. You don't get drawn tennis, do you? Just doesn't, just doesn't happen. But 4 all, I just think, personally, I think it's a bit much. A bit too silly. What's your favourite tennis score? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, lastly, before we go, I want to bring it back to uh, the man that we talked about at the top. Sam Allardyce has been... Uh, well, is is dominating the headlines in the last few days. And given that I've got Duncan, I've got Michael, I've got Liam here, given that we are a, a podcast about football tactics, but we talk a lot about uh, data analytics and its rise within the game, I really want us to, to basically put to rest whether Sam Allardyce is, as he is sometimes described, the sort of forefather or the friendly uncle of football analytics or the use of statistics in football performance and performance analysis or if that's completely wrong because what it's become now is very very different to what Sam Allardyce was going with in the 90s. Well I think the issue with Allardyce and this is probably something Leeds may discover in the next few weeks is that the Allardyce now isn't the Allardyce of 20 years ago and 20 years ago he was at the cutting edge he was one of the first managers to use Prozone he's one of the first managers to use kind of age profiling to realise that you could get a season or two of real good quality out of a, a veteran from, from continental Europe. So he, I think then he really was, but I think almost the game caught him up a little bit and he feel, it feels now like he feels a bit hard done by that he wasn't recognised at that time, which I think is fair, but that doesn't mean that he's necessarily or definitely kind of kept up with, uh, with modern uses of, of data and tactics. Yeah, I think there was always a bit of a caricature about Allardyce that was unfair for a while, and now it's probably not unfair. And I mm. do wonder whether, you know, if he's not, these guys, if they're not managing, what are they doing these days? They're going on like podcasts and they're going on after dinner speaking and they're telling certain types of stories. And they almost, I think they they buy into the caricature because that's what they're doing in when they're not actually managing a club. And Allardyce hasn't managed that much in recent years at all, has he? So he's basically been this talk sport pundit or whatever who then comes back to to doing a job. It's, it's quite strange. It's also strange to think that he was the the previous England manager. You know, the, man, the England manager before the current one, which seems absolutely mad. 100% record. 
bring him back. But I mean, I think if you're calling a podcast no tippy tappy football, then <laughs> might suggest you're not completely open to developments in the, the game as time progresses. It's not even ironic, is it? It's not even like calling it tippy tappy football would be kind of funny. Declaring like like there's a sign on the wall saying no tippy tappy football is incredible. Well, this has been the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's been an absolute delight to welcome Duncan Alexander into the studio for the first time, certainly not the last time. Thanks also to Michael and to Liam for contributing to uh, an interesting discussion about well a number of things really but Sam Allardyce uh, leads the relegation battle the potential record goals per game number uh, thank you for listening make sure you tune in next week subscribe to the podcast feed to get that pod as soon as it drops so make sure you subscribe to The Athletic as well and if you sign up to The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash tactics today you will pay £1.99 a month for the first 12 months of your annual subscription thanks for listening we'll talk again next week The Athletic.